So, I mean, I guess without further ado, we'll just go ahead and get started. So, uh, welcome back to Oh Comrade, Where Art Thou? Um, I'm Alex, as always. This is Andrew. Um, Broadcasting from our our apartments. Yes, from the bunkers. From yeah, from our bunkers, I have plenty of canned food, uh, so I'm gonna ride this baby out. And and I have plenty of bleach. I actually I adhere to that Onion article. Did you see that? Actually, like there was an Onion article from a month ago yeah. where it was like the joke was you know man buys one of every cleaning product in, in case Trump <laughs> announces its coronavirus cure. I I, I just um well the, the <laughs> this is I mean this is. R.I.P. Deadspin, truly too pure for this world, but um, one of my friends sent me a, a, a link from an old Deadspin article before the site was basically killed from mm-hmm. back in 2017, like, it was, it was titled, A President to Drink, A President You Could Drink Bleach With, <laughs> um, and I mean, it was, it was obviously not talking at all about the pandemic or anything like this, but, but really just kind of commenting on the old um, you know, you could have a beer with, uh, yeah, that, trope. Yeah, yeah. that, that kind of trope. Eh. <laughs> um, right. Well, I then, mean, I guess to be fair, to give, to give some credit to the president, he was not talking Andrew about drinking bleach. He was talking about injecting disinfectants <laughs> into the lungs. So, I mean, I do think that we can't go down that horrible fake, you know, the fake news lying media paradigm. And we do have to, you know, we do have to get our facts straight. <laughs> well, yeah, did you see, you see Breitbart, uh, their fact checkers say, well, this is actually, uh, that's not what he said. He just said it should be, it should be looked into. <laughs> it's like that makes it better. Like well, it, right. <laughs> it, it, it always boils down to, it's like that Archer episode. Did you, did you ever see that? one where the kgb guy like nikolai jackoff he has the sex tape of him and um mallory you know archer's mom yeah yeah yeah. and he loses it and she's <laughs> like you know um oh like what did she oh like did you do this like deliberately and and he says something like no like it was merely incompetence and she goes <laughs> well that does that make it better and he's like doesn't it <laughs> I mean, and that seems to be like the like that seems to be what the the defenses of Trump like ultimately boil down to. Like he wasn't like serious. You know, he was just joking right after a very like he was just being sarcastic after a very serious scientific briefing. Like and, you know, that makes it better. Um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I just so the the whole the whole I don't know if you've ever seen any of like the underworld movies. Um. Is that the one with like? Is that who's in that? Is that oh, is that like Kate Beckinsale yes, and the vampire Kate, werewolf yep, thing? The vampire yeah, a long time ago. Werewolves movies. Well, so so he's talking about um, getting sunlight into the into the body and oh right in those movies. You'll remember they have the werewolves invent like uh, light bullets, like bullets that are filled with liquid light to kill the vampire. Oh man! I, mean, I guess I guess I was thinking trying of like to, trying to cure yourself with of of Corona by tapping. I mean, you know, you could use like a light bulb as a as a suppository or something. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So anyway, with with that out of the way, we all, we all know what's going on in the United States, which is nothing new. <laughs> um, but 
you know, the purpose of this podcast is to, you know, talk about what's going on in Russia and, and Ukraine. And so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what has been happening there before turning, you know, back to the United States uh, uh, somewhat. And, and also we'll talk about those societies as well. But I mean, you know, what's interesting in Russia, like there, there has been a lot of talk about how, you know, is this going to be the sort of straw that breaks the Putin regime's back? Uh, and, you know, I don't I don't have the answer to that. But I mean, mm-hmm. I do think that it's fascinating that like this really shows the downside of the of a type of Putin regime or of that of a type of regime that Putin's constructed where, you know, all power, all responsibility right, like rests at the top and specifically with one person. Right. Um you know, Putin has built a system where he controls, you know, the governors. Uh, he controls, um, you know, really almost every facet of, of Russian life. And it's it's something where now that the coronavirus is happening, and I think Trump, you know, made a realization about this uh, as well, or had a realization about this. You, you just can't you just can't will this into disappearing and, and you right. can't just talk it away. Uh, because Russia, it's it's actually like remarkable, had a very similar approach to the United States. So, you know, Russia shares, I think it's the longest border in the world uh, is Russia's border with China. Um, you know, that was completely closed down when the when the outbreak happened. But of course, like much like with the United States, they didn't think about European travelers. And so, you know, people <laughs> traveling into especially Moscow from Europe have brought the coronavirus into Russia and it is spreading uh, again, remarkably, much like the United States. There's a lot of under testing. Uh, there's a lot of sort of conspiracy theories that like, you know, Russia's flu deaths are up. Um, so, you know, that they're mis- that they're labeling deaths from covid as deaths from pneumonia. Well, OK, uh, Putin- so we should we should. Okay, all right. I want to I want to clarify that here, because when you say conspiracy theories, I don't think that's necessarily a conspiracy theory that that these deaths are getting undercounted, right? Like, oh I mean, no, no, certainly. I, should... I think there is there's certainly a tendency to try and um, portray it as like a nefarious act, this undercounting, right? And certainly, you know, if you're looking at United States media, uh, you know, it's it's nefarious and evil when the the Chinese are miscalculating um, the de- the deaths of the the pandemic but um you know we've had several several examples of it of this happening in the united states right like in new york and illinois where they're actually saying oh the death toll must be much higher but when we do it it's just kind of like a you know almost kind of like a fog of war effect right like it's yeah, oh it's, yeah. it's just a pandemic you can't possibly count all these so when you say conspiracy theories i guess i'm curious does that mean that that uh, the public there is thinking that like, oh, the, the government is deliberately misleading on it, or is it kind of just like, I, I think that it's, the government's it's too being, chaotic to, that to the government's the like account. deliberately has deliberately been misleading the, the population about the actual death count. Uh, okay. But I mean, I think it also could be, I mean, it's to be fair, like to go back to our Nikolai Jackoff moment, right? Like, I think it's both, right? I mean, right. I, I think that it's, it's something where it's being undercounted, not purposefully on some level. But then I think once the serious of it be- became known, 
right, that there was right. an effort to stop this from going on. Because, again, like Putin, much like uh, like Boris Johnson and Trump, I don't know if Trump still shaking hands, but like, you know, Putin made a big deal about shaking hands with people. Like, I actually think he shook he shook hands with somebody who was like the, their lead doctor in a, in a Moscow hospital and fighting the mm-hmm. virus. And that doctor tested positive for coronavirus. So then Putin had to go away. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to sort of go back to Putin, though, what's been really fascinating is that he's he's just sort of disappeared from public view. And it's been um, Moscow's mayor. Um, I can't think of his first name. Is it Sergei? I know his last name is Sabianin, uh, and he's been mayor for a while. But, you know, the mayor of Russia's largest city, uh, you know, an area and like, you know, mayor of, of a major population center, like 20 plus million people, I think, right. something like that live in the Moscow region, uh, has really become like the new face of this. And he's been the one who's had to go out and sort of say, well, this is, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. Like, you know, please take this seriously. Um, and so, again, why, what I, is what's why is. Why is Putin gone off the map? Is it just because like that doesn't want he doesn't want to get the public face of it? Like he doesn't want the public brand damage, I guess you would call of of being more associated with this, or is it, or is it like that he could be sick? uh, No, I don't think that he's sick. Um, I, I think that I mean, and he has started to reappear. Um, but I mean, his his FaceTime that he's at least initially when this all started, now granted, we're trying to compress the whole pandemic into one episode. But like initially right. when it started to come out that this was bad, right, that like Moscow was uh, having serious you know problems. They started building emergency hospitals like it was almost entirely Sibyanin. Um And the thing is, is like Putin's done this before. So uh, if you've ever heard of the Kursk disaster, you know, and that yep. that Russian I, I submarine that. sank. Yeah. It was a very similar thing. Now, granted, this is at the very sort of beginning of Putin's reign. um, But, you know, he's constructed a system, right, where like he wants to publicly like, again, it's very much like Trump. It's um, it's remarkable, right? Like he wants to be out there publicly to take credit for when things go right. But when things go very, very bad, he steps aside, right? Or doesn't, I shouldn't say steps aside, but he disappears from public view. And that's what's been going on. Um, and, you know, much like the United States, uh, it's not clear that things are going to be getting better in the near term for Russia. Yeah, uh, I, know, just, disease... so I, I just looked it up right right now. As of the date that we're recording this, as we're recording it, um, there are 80,949 reported cases in Russia, uh, 747 deaths. I think that's definitely. Well, well yeah, all these, yeah. all these numbers are soft. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All of them are um, soft. You know, much like, you know, much like the United States, like I think what's really going to be test like a test for Russia is when this disease spreads into the provinces. Mm -hmm. Right. And when it starts to get worse in the provinces, because Moscow, St. Petersburg, like the large cities, you know, they I don't I'm not going to say they have entirely the capacity to deal with this because I don't know. But they're certainly in a better position to deal with this than some of the smaller cities are like cities of like half a million, you know, to a million people and less. And if that, you know, if the virus spreads there, I mean, I do think you're going to see uh, the regime scrambling to figure out something to do. Uh, You know, another moment that, that happened for Putin that was very, you know, dramatic 
right was and I and I actually watched the video of this. Uh, but there was this small business owner from Moscow. I think she owned like she owned several, maybe more than several, like maybe five or more, uh, like maybe less than ten, more than five, uh, like coffee shops, like restaurants uh, throughout mm-hmm. the Moscow region. And like, if you want to talk about something that was brutal, like when the virus first happened, started to you know emerge in Russia. Putin ordered like a, a, a vacation, like a week long holiday for everybody, you know, like don't go to work, you know, stay home. I think probably thinking that that would be sufficient to fight the virus. When you but say they, when you say vacation, like, was it like paid vacation or was this? What, yeah, what, well, what, what, what would we think of like a stay at home order? Uh, it was like a paid vacation. OK, and so for a lot. But people were forbidden from going out. Right. So like right. a lot of bars, restaurants had to pay their workers while they weren't making any money. Uh, And so a lot of them are in trouble. And this, you know, woman appealed to Putin and was, you know, basically saying, like, you've got to help you got to help us out. You know, we we need money. Like, we can't survive this. And, you know, he gave, you know, yeah, I mean, he gave sort of the normal, you know, standard answer of like, of course, we're going to do something. And, you know, Russia does have this extremely large sovereign wealth fund. Um, you know, they're, they're, they've been very good under Putin about setting aside, you know, a certain percentage of every barrel of oil they sell uh, to fund this, you know, for lack of a better word, like rainy day fund. Right. Uh, but they've been very, very hesitant to use it. And so, you know, a lot of small businesses are suffering. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that, um, you know, they've offered much in the way of relief, you know, like they have, say, in Europe or even, you know, the United States. And well, so, is it is it possible, Alex, that like, so I'm just thinking of how a lot of other countries manage their sovereign wealth fund. I'm guessing this is not this is not just money that's it's not just cash sitting in a bank account. I, is it possible that they've taken a huge hit with the with the stock market collapses around the world? Like in, in, in I mean, my, my understanding of it is that they have a lot of liquidity in it. OK. That it's not like, you know, it's not like Norway Sovereign Wealth Fund that, uh, you know, is is heavily invested in, you know, various right. like, businesses and enterprises throughout the world. I think it's more like literally like cash in cash in, in a bank the, account, okay. cash in a bank account or like cash buried, you know, out in the field somewhere. <laughs> it's, like, it's, you know, it's like a Tony, Scrooge McDuck pool of coin. Like, like Tony Soprano style, you know, like hiding the money <laughs> in the bird feeder and stuff like that. Because then, and, and, and again, I don't know for a fact, but that makes sense to me because if you're Russia, I, I would be very, very hesitant to have my sovereign wealth fund invested in Western entities. Right. right. Where where they could very easily freeze my assets or, you know, lock me out of stuff. I mean, I think like this is sort of a whole other uh, podcast, but that's sort of the that sort of gets into the argument that like the oligarchs money, you know, like Abramovich, uh, who yeah. owns Chelsea. And then I think there's another like, you know, oligarch that owns the Monaco uh, football club. But anyway, like that, that they use that money to to. Like they use their money to move abroad, mm-hmm. right? That like they're the oligarchs money is really the state's money. And so that's how Russia gets leverage over Western financial markets and Western governments is it's not like with the official state sovereign wealth fund. It's through the money the oligarchs have. Okay. Right. That like they allow them to invest in real estate and things like that. I mean, that's the that's the entire argument about like Trump's connections with Russia. Well, right. 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 Like I, I don't think that he has 
I don't think he ever took uh, a loan from like, say, the I don't know, the Bank of China. Don't know if the, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard about that, but <laughs> apparently the Trump organization has a loan due like in 2022 from the Bank of China. Yeah. But anyway, uh, that it, it's through, you know, it's through private like individuals, right? Mm-hmm. Like individual Russians coming to him and saying, like, you know, I've got a ton of cash and I want to invest in real estate. Well, um, this was kind of what we talked you know, listeners will remember this is kind of what we talk about with the, the I guess like you'd call it the arrangement that the state has with the oligarchs, right? Like that the yeah. state allows them to state allows them to be oligarchs in exchange for, um, you know, I guess fealty, probably a, yeah. a good word for it. Yeah, like when when. Um... When it's like, uh, you know, they get to keep their money and sort of do what they want with it. But when it's time to it, like do something like build uh, build a so- like a soccer stadium or football stadium yeah. for the World Cup or help build infrastructure in Sochi for the Olympics, like they're going to answer the call. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, or build that, you know, they built a huge bridge connecting mainland Russia to Crimea. Like, I'm pretty sure that some of Putin's like closest friends and allies got that contract as well. So, yeah, like there's this very sort of symbiotic relationship uh, between the oligarchs and uh, and the Russian state. But uh, to go back, like, you know, Russia is sitting on this huge sovereign wealth fund, uh, but so far has been hesitant to use it for payroll relief for like small business, you know, loans like in the United States that could that could be forgiven. Um, I mean, maybe I, I should double check uh, to see what they are doing. Um, well, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's it's kind of similar to what we're seeing in in other countries approaches where which I think we talked about this too, right? Like how how Denmark is doing the, the we're going to pay, pay your employees for a portion of your employees wages. So long as you keep them on the payroll, um, similar, similar thing in, in the UK. Uh, and I think this is kind of, it's kind of supposed to be how the, um, payroll protection, uh, program works in the United States where it's basic, it's a, it's a loan, but if you use it for your payroll, you don't have to pay it back. Yeah, so um, so I'm looking through, and it looks like at least, I don't know if they've done anything recently, but like back in March, what the proposal was, was that they would, I mean, I remember reading about this, like they're essentially just offering tax relief. Mm-hmm. Okay. And not, you know, any sort of like payroll relief. Um, so yeah, like, you know, Companies with 15 employees or fewer that make no more than 120 million rubles, so 1.52 million in income, will be given more time to make federal welfare payments. Uh, Small and mid-sized businesses that experience financial hardship amid the crisis will have their credit payments delayed for six months. So, you know, really not not a whole lot if if you're, you know, trying to stay alive, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're a restaurant or a bar or whatever. So... Yeah, so there there's a lot of problems in Russia um, as far as small business relief goes. And, I mean, a lot of this is going to follow Putin's doorstep. Uh, and, you know, already this has sort of interfered with his plans because they, they've canceled the May Day Parade, which, for those of you who don't know, like that's the Victory Day Parade for beating the Nazis in World War mm-hmm. II. 
uh, that's sort of like the 4th of July, Christmas, the Super Bowl, whatever, like all rolled into one. I mean, that's a huge deal. Right. Um, it is, and it is probably the one, like that victory over the Nazis is probably the glue that is held together the Soviet Union, Putin, like for a time anyway, and now Putin's regime, right? It's like this this memory and this collective idea of sacrifice that is embodied by the veterans and sacrifice in World War II. So, or in Russia, the Great Patriotic War, as it's known. So that is a huge deal to cancel that parade. Um, so that's happened. Uh, we talked to two about Putin's p- uh, proposed uh, constitutional referendum, right, where he was basically right. going to, you know, have his uh, extended stay in office legitimized. Uh, that's been pushed back indefinitely. And so, you know, he's really now coming under threat. And and I think, you know, as we talked about before, like sort of the Putin social contract between him and, you know, the average Russian in the street was you know, you stay out of politics, right? You don't protest. You don't vote for opposition parties. You know, you basically don't get involved in the political sphere and we will guarantee you, we promise you economic prosperity. And for a long time that worked. Mm -hmm. Mostly because of rising oil prices, but it, it still nevertheless, like it worked. And now the coronavirus has thrown that completely into, you know, disarray. Uh, oil prices are in the tank. They're not what they're not where Russia needs them to be. And and sort of like every every economy in, in a system that depends on consumption. Right. People aren't going out. People aren't buying uh, goods anymore. Uh, or at least as much as they used to. And so there are a lot of sectors that are going to struggle. And, and you combine that with the sanctions that are already happening. Um, things are pretty, you know, I think things could be very dire in Russia. I mean, again, right. I don't and know. I'm, I'm glad oh, you, go ahead. Well, I'm glad you brought up the sanctions things because I'm, you know, I'm curious about that. Like I've heard a lot about, um, you hear a lot about like the sanctions and their effects during this pandemic in, in countries like Iran and Venezuela. Um, I haven't heard as much about how they're going to uh, affect you know, Russian Russian population. So I, I don't know. Maybe you can. I mean, they're, maybe they're you can more, speak about that. Like, but they're seems... more like. I mean, oh, sorry. Like uh, the, they're they're more. I mean, what was very interesting about these sanctions is, I mean, I think that. I mean, I think the Obama administration, you know, who first enacted them, I think they understood that if they adopted some broad Iranian style sanctions, and maybe this is a lesson for us with Iran, uh, but that if they adopted very punitive, harsh sanctions that would impact the majority of like the average Russian person, that what they were going to do instead was just sort of rally around Putin. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think that there's something to be said for you know, enacting sanctions like that, because whether it's Castro or the Iranian regime or um, or Putin, right, when you're when you say like, well, the West is out to get us uh, and then they enact these crippling sanctions, then, you know, it's sort of a natural response to be like, well, see, I was right. Can't trust them. You know, so who are you left with? You're left with me. Better trust me. Right. Right. And so I think they understood that. So these sanctions were extremely targeted towards the wealthiest Russians, 
right, and trying to limit Russia's access to credit abroad. Now, that in a time like this, that could be extremely uh, harmful to Russia uh, because, you know, as we've said, like they Russia, despite its, you know, um, despite all the like flagrant, you know, wealth, like the flagrant showing of wealth that the oligarchs have, you know, despite a, a lot of the problems they have, uh, they they do all they have all like Putin's government has always tried to maintain fiscal response, like uh, be very fiscally conservative, right? Like not mm-hmm. run deficits, um, you know, maintain the sovereign wealth fund, like very rarely, if at all, dip into that. Uh, and, and they haven't really cared if that results in, in pain and hardship for the average person. Um, and in part, they could do that because you know, there were ways for them to get credit abroad. Uh, you know, not a lot of that credit has dried up. Uh, I, I think the other thing that, you know, is very, that almost would be more harmful to Russia, though, was like, they sort of to like cut off their nose to spite their face. So like, really, what's been, I think, the most <laughs> remarkable for Russia is, or like, at least on the everyday level, uh, and, and I really should talk to some friends of mine who still live there. But you know, they they adopted these counter sanctions. Right. So like when the because the, it wasn't just the U.S., it was the EU that, that adopted sanctions, uh, imposed sanctions against Russia. And so as a counter, Russia was like, OK, well, we're sanctioning your production, which was mostly like fruits, vegetables, wine, like things like that. So, right. you know, you used to in Moscow and obviously I haven't lived in Russia since these sanctions started to happen. You know, you used to be able to buy Italian, French wines, German beers, you know, beer from all over, wine from all over, uh, bread, like Italian, like French bread, Italian cheese, you know, pretty much like going to a U.S. supermarket. I mean, you know, the the more like the higher, the more upscale ones, I should say, were like that. Right. I mean, you know, it's like being anywhere else. Uh, They had products from all over the world. Um, Now, I don't know. I mean, now I've heard that they've, you know, tried to substitute uh, Russian products for them, uh, you know, try to get more wine from countries that aren't in the EU. But, you know, if things continue to go bad, uh, like if they have a bad harvest or something like that, like that, that could be something else where people, you know, where people feel it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's anywhere close to happening. Um, but at the same time, like that's that's definitely a possibility out there. Um, you know, the other thing, too, is that, you know, Russia desperately needs a market to sell its oil and to sell its natural gas. And, you know, China was a big uh, was a big uh, purchaser. Uh, their demand has gone down. Uh, the EU obviously is a big purchaser. That demand has gone down. And, and I do sometimes wonder if like the EU, if the United States, maybe not while Trump's president, um, but like if they really do feel like like they can break the Putin regime, right? Like if if they can just hold out a little bit longer and buy their natural gas or like buy it, you know, buy oil from somewhere else, then like maybe that's what pushes him over the edge, mm-hmm. right? Uh, again, I don't think we're anywhere close to getting there. I mean, obviously a lot of other, like every country has its own problems to deal with right now that doesn't really involve Putin or Russia. Uh, but I mean, that's out there. And I mean, I think Putin has to be, you know, scared because again, like we, we talked in our last episode about how the coronavirus has sort of laid bare all these sort of problems that we were able to just like chug past. And for Putin anyway, it was that, you know, they, 
double double down, you know, triple barrel bet, whatever gambling analogy you want to use on a fossil fuel economy. Right. Like they they looked at I mean, and, you know, again, like they're not stupid. I mean, I, I know that they're not, um, you know, they're extremely clever. But I mean, I I mean, maybe they just gambled that by the time the world was off fossil fuels, that they would have figured something else out or that, you know, they could extract so much in the short well, term that it wasn't, you know. Yeah, go ahead. Well, OK, so so we're talking about I think this is important. We need to bring this up and and this this potentially warrants an entire episode all on its own. I don't I, I think part of this has to do, too, with like. I don't think their calculus involved them getting into this kind of um, this game of chicken with Saudi Arabia. Right? Like, I don't think it I don't think it did either. And And I mean, like this is, you know, it's. I don't know. I, my, my understanding of that entire situation is, is, is a little limited. So, but I'll, I'll try and give it a shot and you can, sure you can correct me if I'm wrong, but basically you have, um, you have OPEC, which is, which is, it is a cartel. I mean, like, I don't want to use that in a, in a pejorative sense, but it's, it is a, an organization of oil producing countries right like that is literally what it stands for organization of petroleum exporting countries yeah. and they set production and they set prices and now i am not sure if russia is a member of OPEC. see that's what it's it's actually it's not so if you look at right. uh, what they call opec plus okay that would if you if people have seen that in the news opec plus i'm pretty sure that's opec plus russia okay so uh, there the, so there was a there was a dispute between Russia and um and Saudi Arabia and so, somehow I'm not entire, I don't remember how exactly like this fits into it but it, it I know that part of this also has to do with they both want to kill the United States shale industry. Yeah, yeah. And, and like and, that's that is effectively what they've done. I mean they I you know I've a lot of free time on my hands, so I, you know I've got Bloomberg uh, channel on in the background because you know I think um, one of the truest things I've ever been told: if you want like the most straightforward and honest news, go to the financial and business press because you know they've got too much money on the line to put kind of like the MSNBC or Fox News spin on it. Right. But they, I mean, they're all saying like that there's no way shale or fracking in the United States recovers from this because you know oil was trading at negative uh and which means they were literally paying you to take take the oil off its hand off your off their hands yeah and these are all very high high cost of production low margin oil uh oil wells in the united states that if the oil is low they cannot possibly survive. It's not economically viable. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's, they also have the added problem of these are not wells that can be shut off and turned on again very easily. It, yeah. it is, if you shut them off, the pressure is, is done in such a way that it permanently damages it and it's, it's done. You can't get back to it. Yeah. So somehow wanting to kill, wanting to kill the U.S. industry factors into, this dispute and you basically get into a price war 
with, well, not necessarily a price war, but a production war where Saudi Arabia just completely opens up the valve and says, we are, we are going to flood the market and we are betting on that we can withstand. We have enough, we have enough financial resources built up that we can withstand whatever the short term pain of having oil trade at again Neg- like negative $35 a barrel. I think well, that was, the, the just, the, well, that was right. just like the West Texas. Well, right. But like it's, it, I, that was just that, but it's, it's also, it's, it's also indicative of like the, Oh, sure. Certainly the complete tanking of oil prices worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, Andrew, I think so far you're, I, I agree with everything you've said. I mean, I guess to, to provide a little bit more context. So, you know, like there is OPEC, Right, right, which is the the organization petroleum exporting countries, and to give people a little background, like that's mostly uh, the Middle Eastern countries, so like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, um, Iran, Iraq, um, the UAE. Is is Venezuela part of OPEC? They they are. Then okay. I think Venezuela is a part of OPEC. Uh, so is Nigeria, I think. All right. uh, but it's you know it's it's a select group of countries. Uh, interestingly enough. Russia's not an OPEC, like hence OPEC plus. I mean, OPEC or Russia does agree to adhere to a lot of OPEC guidelines because I think they see that it's in their interest. Um, but the one, the big sort of like wild card in all this is the United States, which is right. also not an OPEC. And as you said, Andrew, because of the shale boom, because of the shale revolution, the United States surpassed Saudi Arabia, surpassed Russia. To become the, the largest, largest oil, oil producer, producer in the world, yeah, in the world, and and that gave a lot of hope here in the United States about you know energy independence uh, in scare quotes, but you know as you said, it was all built on the understanding or built on the structure that oil would be trading at you know I think around like forty dollars a barrel. Yeah, I think forty right. was like was was if I remember right, around forty dollars was where the floor. For what yeah. shale could do was, and yeah, I think like, like when this was all this all came about when it was trading much higher. Yeah, I mean that's like the baseline, and so if you but if you look at Saudi Arabia, uh, if you and to some extent Russia, but especially the Saudis, if you look at what really gives them a ton of leverage over the world oil market is they have some of the lowest production costs, and their wells are just kind of like the traditional you know straight down wells where they don't have mm-hmm. to do like horizontal drilling or you know really anything of that matter so uh and i think like russia also has fairly low you know uh oil costs um not as low as saudi arabia but anyway um you know russia and saudi arabia are not going to be too upset at the u.s shale industry um because they're also making a ton of money um from high oil prices. But, you know, now it's was sort of those thing, one of those times where I think that Putin saw an opportunity uh, where he could not only destroy the sale industry, but maybe, right, since Russia is not technically an OPEC, uh, if, if OPEC cut production, that Russia could step in to fill the void. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that their, their fundamental misunderstanding was to misread the demand for oil. And I think what they believed was that, okay, you know, OPEC cuts prices because of the or cuts production because of uh, coronavirus to protect the price per barrel. Uh, People are still going to want oil like China's economy is on the rebound right after the shutdowns and everything. Uh, We can we can capture some market share. 
so they did not go along with OPEC uh, in in lowering production uh, and instead tried to do this right. You know, try to grab market share. Uh, but Saudi Arabia looked at that and was like, okay, well, we can't sit by and let this happen. Uh, we can go, you know, we can go even lower than Russia can in terms of prices. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Opened up the taps and has, you know, dramatically realtered the the oil oil market. Uh, and I think is, you know, Russia in a very precarious position because like they need a rebound desperately. Like I think it's something like 40 percent of their state budget comes from selling oil. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's that's staggering. Um, so well, I think that might be that right there, Alex, that might be that might be part of the reason why they have that. Um, you know, as you're talking about, like the the hesitance to to tap into the sovereign wealth fund. Yeah, well, because the, in the short term, anyway, there's no sign that they can replenish it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know. A lot is up in the air now in Russia. Um, it's it's not clear, you know, when the world economy is going to rebound. Uh, if you think about like, you know, w- one thing that I always think about is like people are going to be traveling for the next couple of years a lot less than they are now. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be flying as much. They're probably not going to be driving as much. Uh, there's going to be a lot less demand for oil. And what, you know, what does that do to Russia? Because if it's, if it's, if there's too much demand, you know, you, you can work with OPEC to fix that. Right. Right. Like if there's, if there's not enough and you've, you're in a price war with the Saudis, uh, you're, you're in trouble. Right. And so, you know, that, that is a real, you know, that's a real question mark for Putin. Like what is going to happen with oil prices? Um, are they going to be able to, you know, recover? And I think more importantly, too, like some like leverage that Russia had, especially over the EU, their biggest leverage was oil and, and especially like natural gas for heating. Right. Right. And, and, you know, so they knew that, you know, the EU can push us around to some extent, but they can never completely, you know, go all the way with us because if they do, you know, they're, they're going to freeze in the winter. Right. These, uh, were, these were the uh, the the shutoffs in 2000. What was it? Eight, 2009. Yeah. And some of that was price disputes with Ukraine, uh, I think, and Belarus as well, because all the pipelines go through mm-hmm. go through those countries. But I mean, Russia was I should look into the status of this. But I mean, Russia was uh, building a pipeline through the Baltic Sea that would go straight to Germany. I think it would go from like around somewhere like St. Petersburg in Russia's Baltic coast and pump gas directly to uh to Europe that way and bypass Belarus, bypass uh, Poland, you know, all these other countries that they had disputes with, um, you know, what the future of those product projects hold. I don't know. Um, you know, certainly this crisis, uh, this this energy crisis is giving uh, the green energy sector uh, new light. Well, I'm not not to say it didn't have life, but I mean, it's making that, you know, making green energy a little bit more compelling right now. Right. Right. Uh, and especially too, like you think about the oil industry and, and how much investment that gets um, from, you know, from banks, from governments, from entrepreneurs, from whatever. Um, now might be, you know, now might be a time where they start to look to shift their money into to something else. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a dramatic moment for Russia. I think it's going to be a dramatic moment for, for Putin as well, because his whole social contract now, I mean, I, I don't want to say that it's torn up. But it's in serious jeopardy. 
Um, you know, what that means uh, for his future, I don't know. I mean, Russians could decide to go a more Western style route, which is what, uh, which is what, you know, liberals in Russia and, you know, liberals in, in the West have always hoped for, uh, but they could very well double down on, uh, someone like Putin, but who just promises to go that, mm -hmm. that, that extra distance, you know, um, so, you know, with that, that all being said, though, it's what's interesting, too, to me, and this is going to be a little transition point for us, is that uh, when Russia first started, like, combating the coronavirus, you know, they were like, oh, like, trying to do the Sweden approach, like, just, you know, social distance, stay away from people, um, you know, do this sort of all voluntarily. And, you know, I saw somebody comment on this, like, you know, in Russia, Ukraine, places like that, like, people aren't going to listen if you do, if you say something like that, because they think that if it was serious and the government would just order them to do it. <laughs> yeah. And so, the, you know, they didn't really follow the guidelines. And so now, you know, Russia has gotten much more stringent, right? Like you can only uh, and I think it's very similar to Ukraine, too. Like you can only live, leave your apartment building to go for walks. Um, you have to stay like really close to your apartment building. I think for a little while, actually, you're only allowed outside to walk your dog or like a pet. And so like having a dog became a huge, you know, asset uh, during this time. Like, mm -hmm. I think that there was, there's talk of like downloading, I think they actually this in Russia, like the QR code phones, like a pass outside and like shopping or, you know, due to essential services. So they have gotten much more serious, um, which is, you know, sort of much more in line with uh, like the impression I think people get from, um, you know, like the movie, the HBO series Chernobyl, Right. That like this is a society where you sort of have to be like bossed around. Um, and I yeah. think like what sort of perfectly like highlights that, like the, you know, the the idea in Russia, you kind of like the strong leader that that does what needs to be done is it's the mayor of. Um, so it's it's Ukraine's like fourth largest city, uh, Dnipro. Um It used to be called uh, Dnipro Petrovsk, I think. Uh, but anyway, the mayor of the city. Uh, as the coronavirus, you know, started to become a more serious issue, he ordered like 2000 mass graves dug out in like, you know, a, a field somewhere, you know, like replete with the Orthodox crosses or no, he ordered like 600 graves dug, sorry, like 600 graves, like 2000, they ordered like 2000 body bags. And he made a big deal about posting these like images on social media and I mean, like the the implication, I guess, was sort of clear, right? Like the city right. said, like, if we think you've died of covid, we're not going to do an autopsy on you. We're just going to stick you in a body bag, cover you with disinfectant, put you in a cheap wooden coffin and we're going to bury you in one of these graves. Like this is what you know, this is what will happen to you if you don't listen to like don't adhere to the quarantine. And I think in the United States, like that would produce a lot of shock, right? And like people would be very upset if something like that happened. And people were upset in Ukraine too, but there were a lot of people that were like, you know, this guy gets it, right? Like he knows mm -hmm. what the people need to hear. And you know, like he's doing this because he really cares about us and wants us to be, you know, safe. And I mean, and he took a very confrontational approach too uh, during Easter. So, you know, Easter in Ukraine was a week after Easter here. And there uh, a, a very common tradition in uh, in Ukraine is you get your Easter basket, not with, you know, chocolates and eggs and, you know, from a magical bunny. But, you know, you have like sausages and like these cakes they bake there and you take it to church and the priest blesses, you know, blesses your everybody's baskets. 
And that's like, even if you're not particularly religious, like you don't go to church, that's something that most people do. And so that, you know, obviously there is a huge fear about that. Uh, and so the the mayor of uh, Dnipro, I think his name is, um, or Dnipro, I can never say it right. I think his name is Boris uh, Filatov, like something like that. So he went to the churches and tried to get them to, you know, not not do these ceremonies, like keep people away. Um, but the and this is too, I guess, a little trivia lesson. So now there are two Orthodox churches in Russia or in Ukraine. Sorry, there's the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, like Kiev mm-hmm. Patriarch, which is like the Ukrainian Ukrainian Orthodox Church, like their Patriarch is in Kiev. And then there's the Ukrainian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarch. Right. And so they listen to the patriarch in Moscow. And so the one that listened, you know, the Moscow patriarch Orthodox Church was still planning on having services. Right. Like still planning on having people come and, you know, and worship. And so Filatov like basically threatened all of the churches and said, you know, I'm going to find you. I'm going to turn your water off. I'm going to turn your power off. I'm going to dig up all the roads outside your churches for, you know, in air quotes, like emergency construction projects. And I think he even said something like, you know, even God himself won't protect you from me if you (laughs) if you have these services. (laughs) And, you know, like, again, that was something that like really endeared him to a lot of people there. Um, And, you know, what's sort of remarkable about that, I guess, is. You know, you see that style of leadership. And I mean, I'm not going to say that like it's like the perfect style of leadership. But I mean, I do think that it was something that a lot of people like took some pride in. Right. Like, you know, this guy like he's you know, it's something like, you know, he does it because he really loves us. Right. Like he really Mm -hmm. cares about us. And that made me think about, you know, like, well, what do we have going on in the United States? Right. Like we, we have like Texas lieutenant governor saying like, you know, no one asked me if I was willing to die to save the economy. And, and I say, yes, I am. Uh, or, you know, or you have other people that say like, you know, Trump started tweeting this, like that the cure for all of this is like worse than the disease. Right. right? Like, you know, essentially like what's the big deal if one percent of the population or less or more, you know, since nobody knows what they're talking about. <laughs> Uh, well, how is that, you know, that's insignificant to, uh, the, the damage that we've suffered from the economy, right? Like, you know, we, we make these kind of calculations all the time. Like, you know, they're like, we set speed limits at 75 miles per hour or, you know, 80 or whatever, 35, knowing very well that like the safest speed is zero. So like in, in every sort of, you know, economic decision we make, the loss of human life is sort of factored into it. Right. Um, And, you know, to me, that was, you know, very, very I mean, I shouldn't say that it's it wasn't very surprising. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I I assume that those arguments would happen. Uh, And, you know, again, like I don't want to completely sweep them aside. Right. Because, you know, if you are in the United States, uh, really anywhere in the world. Right. As we've talked about, whether you're in Russia, Ukraine, uh, you know, people need their jobs in order to to earn money and to buy food and to do all of those things. Uh, but what is like a real contrast for me and, and what the virus is sort of really laid bare here is and you saw this with like these reopening protests. Right. I mean, I, I understand a lot of them were small business owners. Right. Who are suffering, like who are not getting the relief that they want or need from from the government. But at the same time, like there were these arguments about like, you know, it's my choice whether or not I want to go out and get this. 
you know, it's um, if I want to do this, then that's, you know, that's my decision. Um, what are some of the other ones? Like, you know, I need a haircut, you know, blah, blah, blah. And those arguments are sort of all framed in this understanding of American freedom that like freedom means to like means that I get to do what I want to do. And mm-hmm. regardless of what the consequences are. And I, I do think that there's a component to that of there's an element to that of American freedom. Uh, but I mean, I do think that there's something else that is sort of behind the scenes there and that, you know, really like what freedom to me should mean. And, and you know, FDR talked about this, too, I think, in, in talking about the New Deal. It's that, you know, are you really free when you have to keep a job to keep health insurance? So if you did get coronavirus, you're not going to be, you know, even if you get cured or recover, you're going to have a mountain of medical debt awaiting you. Right. Like, is that really freedom? You know, mm-hmm. is it is it freedom that you have to think about risking your health versus, um, you know, like risk your health in order to get food, to, you know, pay the bills, to do all those sorts of things, right? Like, is that really what, you know, freedom is? Uh, and, you know, it made me think about the uh, one of, I think, the best philosophical, you know, points uh that that or philosophical stories that i've ever read and also like it's a very good like if you want to understand existentialism too i think this is a good intro to existentialism but it's it's a short story that's built within the famous russian novel the brothers karamazov by fyodor dostoevsky and it's called the grand inquisitor and to kind of give you some background to the story uh, if you haven't read either the brothers karamazov or this a short story, The Grand Inquisitor. So there's there's three brothers, and one of them, Ivan, is an atheist, right? He's very much of that new man mold that was taking place in Russia in the 19th century, like sort of the the radicals from which Bolshevism would eventually be born, right? So, you know, he's mm-hmm. sort of a radical atheist. Uh, and then his brother, Alyosha, is, um, you know, profoundly pious and very, very religious. And so, you know, Ivan is, you know, trying to tell Alyosha this story. Uh, and this is, you know, in part like his critique of organized religion. But like the the basis of the story is that it takes place in Sevilla in Spain during the span. Uh, and Jesus Christ is returned to Earth. Right. He's returned to our world. He performs, you know, several miracles. He starts to gather a following and he's arrested by the Inquisition and thrown in prison. And the Grand Inquisitor comes to, you know, sort of confront him and basically says, like, why have you come back? You know, we don't need you anymore. (laughs) Like you're you don't understand, you know, everything that you've done. Like you told these people that, you know, like it goes to like the three temptations of Christ. Right. So like, you know, we'll just go into one of them. So one of them, right, the devil tempts Christ by saying, well, you know, turn these stones into loaves of bread. And and Christ refuses to do it. And so, like, the Grand Inquisitor says, more or less, like, well, you should have done that, right? Like, you should have turned the low, the stones into loaves, because if you did, then you would have provided food for people, and they would have followed you, and they would have done whatever you wanted them to do. Because the freedom that you gave them, you know, and he's talking to you, right? The freedom mm-hmm. that you gave them was, like, 
for lack of a better word, like radical openness. Like you gave them a world in which they were entirely free to make their own choices. And like based on those choices, they earn salvation or they, you know, they could earn, you know, they could earn something else. Right. But like you linked salvation to choice. Right. Like, you know, that that's a huge theme throughout or like through, you know, the stories was that like it's it's a it's a choice. Right. It's a decision right. that you make. And that's where salvation lies. Right. It's in this choice to follow Jesus. And what the Grand Inquisitor says is like, people don't want that. <laughs> you know, like people don't care about that kind of stuff because like you fundamentally miscalculated human nature. Like uh, people don't like want to be told what to do. Like people are immensely fearful and they want someone who's going to address all of their fears. And like we, you know, like the the church, capital C, we've done that for them. We tell them what they need to do to be saved. You know, we we're the ones who really know what's going on. Like we've taken the bur the burden of freedom on ourselves, right, to make life easier for these people. And that this is what they really want. You know, they don't want what you bring them. They only want what we bring them, which is, you know, basically like a structured life, right? Like we take away the burden of their freedom of choice and they love us for it. So go away. And, and so, you know, getting, I guess now that that's been said, like why these, the, the coronavirus protests, like why these, these in America of freedom, you know, why it gets me thinking about all of this is, you know, it's sort of like, okay, you want to go back to work or, you know, you want to be able to go out to a restaurant and, and, you know, drink a beer or whatever. I don't know, man. Like, Andrew, do you really think that like that's being motivated by like, I just want to do whatever I want to do? Because to me, like, I, I think it's that we've constructed this entire system that just basically sort of depends on people going out to bars and going out to restaurants and, and spending money, you know, and working at jobs that they don't necessarily like or, you know, all of that. Do, like that it depends on people doing that and that now that that has all like fallen apart instead of saying like okay maybe we should address the inequalities in the system right like instead of focusing on what went wrong and and how this is you know not sustainable we just kind of want to double down and be like quick get back you know everyone get back to work like don't focus on everything that's going back on like going on around you like let's just get back to work everything's going to be okay, you know, sort of ignore, like put on the, you know, put on the blinders and let's just get back to work. Well, I think there's, I mean, there are people that are saying that, um, you know, there are people that are saying like that this is, Hey, this, this exposes uh, some pretty major flaws in the way we were doing things and we should address those. Um, I think the protests that, that we're seeing now, the ones that um I don't think they're motivated by by people wanting to do whatever they want, but I think there's there might be a sense that like they're motivated by people that had been relatively isolated from uh, the downside and bad aspects of society and the precarious precarious uh, pre precarity yeah precarity of it um, suddenly finding themselves in a position where. Uh, there are stakes and um you know they 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 might they have something to lose um it's it's hard for me to take it seriously because i 
because they're not legitimate. Like these are not these these protests that you're seeing outside of like the state house in Michigan and the state house in Virginia or, or Colorado. Um, they're not. They aren't like organic protests. They aren't things right. that are mm-hmm. that are. Um, it's the same thing that we saw with like the 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 Tea Party, right? Like like there there's there is money and organization behind these. These are these are completely distinct from the movements and events that have mm-hmm. been organized at Amazon, because because I think the people at the at the Amazon protest they actually have something to lose, and it's like like yes it's you know it's not it's not ideal that people are losing their their small businesses if someone owns a like a, a a great clips franchise and they're out there protesting for the economy to 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 open back up they're not the ones that are going to be going in to cut the hair like i think that is like there is some element of that in your um in what you're saying about like you want the freedom but not the consequences but like yeah it, it's 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 a little different it's a little different to me to say um to say like I believe that I should have the freedom to go about my daily life knowing the risk of of this pandemic and if I get it I get it that's on me uh compared to it's it's violating my freedoms to keep me from having my workers go in to work every day and risk themselves. Well, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I mean, still do all the things that I need to do, such as like quarantining yeah, and getting like, I, I groceries delivered try to think of like the best way to like, like how I want to, um, to phrase this, this issue. But I mean, I, like, I see what, I see what you mean, right? Like I, I, I see that it's, it's, that there are a certain type of people like, you know, as you said, like the Great Clips franchise owner that are, you know, that embrace this sort of thing. But I mean, at the same time, too, like I, I do think that it's it goes much deeper to this like American notion of like what freedom and personal responsibility, you know, mean. And I think that that's too like maybe maybe I think ultimately where I'm going with this is like it it also I think to me suggests like why we're so bad at at fighting this virus. <laughs> well, I think there's I think the thing is like you know like American personal responsibility has always been kind of a um, you know personal responsibility for thee but not for me type situation, right? Like yeah, it's always you know the the people that are. Um, that are happy to say, oh, well, you should have followed. You should have just uh, followed directions. As soon as um, you know, a black kid gets shot by the cops, uh, you know, they're the first ones to tell you that this is a trampling of their civil rights and civil liberties to say that they can't get a haircut. Yeah, right. Like it's 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 not a two way street for them. You know, like that's how they're hurting in this situation. Their stock portfolio isn't doing as well as it should. You know, they're they're um. The long, the longest uh, bull markets ended, and that is the extent to which they're knowing, knowing pain. Uh, and if and, and to rectify that, if that means that some some people making ten dollars an hour have with you know 
garbage health insurance have to get a, a life-threatening virus, then, you know, so be it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and to go back to, like, it, it I mean, maybe we can end with this, too, because it's like, yeah, and, and well, I mean, what I was going to say is I think, like, at at moments like this, when sort of the chips are on the table, uh, right, or like when, you know, when the chips are down, you know, everything's like out, you know, out there to see, uh, it's sort of remarkable that like the main thing that we talk about is like what the stock market's doing and, you know, how important it is to get the economy going back again, uh, like talking about it almost like it's just, if it's some sort of like demiurge, right, that like exists outside right. of outside of human activity. And I mean, it's, it's something like where I think that like, it just, it really shows like, you know, well, what, what is the promise that of like American life, right? Like, you know, what is it that we live for? Uh, and, and it me that like, in a time like right now, it, it seems that the answer is, well, you just live to work long enough to hang on. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and like, that's all there is. And Instead of fixing it, you know, we just need to get people to go back to work. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that that is kind of like that's to me like very alarming uh, because, you know, again, like in Russia, like uh, to go back to like Putin, uh, it's a, again remarkable to have the uh, to have the um, a very similar response, because I think that you know, what is the most disturbing is it's like, well, the reason why we need to not tell people about this and like this sort of like goes back to, you know, the the whole like Grand Inquisitor, you know, part of it is, uh, you know, what do we really have to offer people? Uh, and the answer to me would be, well, we seemingly don't have a lot to offer if the best that we can do is try to keep them working and try to keep the you know economy or society functioning as long as we can, um, before, you know, before the virus ultimately forces us not to. Right. And, you know, that is like very, very telling. And yeah, like, I know that the counter argument to that is, well, okay, like, look at Sweden, you know, look at what they're doing. Aren't they doing something similar? Like they're keeping their economy open in a way that no other, you know, country, at least Western country, uh, is and I mean again my response to that though would be that they seem to have a much more like collectively focused identity than we do uh, and it looks like voluntary measures like more or less like sort of work for them but I well, mean even then uh, okay, even so, then so, they had a lot of problems yeah so I was just gonna say I mean like they've got the highest death rate, or they've got the highest or one of the highest at least if not the highest death rate from this. Yeah. And I mean, another thing, too, though, is like they have invested in their healthcare system. Right. right? And it has not been overwhelmed, even as you at least as far as I know, it hasn't. Um, whereas in the United States, like and as well as in Russia, right, like, well, we know that's not true. Right. Like we mm -hmm. know that without social distancing, things would have been very, very bad here, like probably multiple New York cities. Um, right. And I mean, like it's you know, it, it, it still is going to be very bad. Like, I, yeah, I, just... I mean, and, and, and we should say that it's not over yet either. Right. So, you know, with, with that all in mind, um, uh, you know, I do hope that when this is all said and done, right. Like we have, you know, the, we, that we come out of this, you know, better than, than we were going in. I mean, I guess that's really all you can hope for, mm -hmm. uh, in, in an event like this. But I mean, I think that it has given us, 
you know, a lot to think about. And like, I, I do think that, you know, when we talk about like the post coronavirus society, like, you know, what kind of society is it? Is it if it's just one where we like get back to, you know, in air quotes, like get back to normal, get back to work. I mean, sure, like there's something to be said about that. And like, I don't like this whole time, like I don't want to sound like I was discrediting like people wanting to go back to work. Like I, I want to go back to the office. Uh, I do. Uh, it's just right. uh, it's a lot easier to work from the office than it is from home. But I mean, at the same time, like, you know, I, I don't I don't want to do that just because I think like I have a right to do it. Right. And like, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to do it if it means putting a lot of other people uh, at risk. And I mean, I think that's where we I mean, I, I wonder if like that's eventually where we go. Uh, and, and my point with that is like, like, yes, you have freedoms and like it, you know, the government should not like be, you know, locking people down for no good reason. And, you know, like things like QR passcodes, like in China and Russia, like that is, you know, terrifying, like that could easily be abused. Right. Uh, that, you know, but that's one element of it. Right. I mean, another element of it is like that we cannot like personal freedom. Right. I think has some has some sub, you know, elements to that. You know, one is like, are you really like you have to be free to live with the consequences of your decision? Right. And another part of it is, well, you know, sometimes like it's worth foregoing a haircut or a beer at the bar if it means that you're going to save other people's lives. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, because I have no doubt that if somebody who is at a coronavirus protest actually got the coronavirus, that they would want to go to the hospital if they had to and, you know, right. expect to be treated like that. You know, so that's one part of it, which it's like, OK, well, you want to go out there and, you know, go back to work. Well, you know, you need to be you know, you should be willing to deal with this. Uh, that's, you know, one part of it. And the other part of it is like. You know, and maybe this is something where it would be better to like, you know, sever this from from the government. But it's like I, I keep thinking too, like it, it's remarkable how, on the one hand, the like you know right wing like libertarian style folks like they ascribe they they ascribe so much power to the government, right? And and there seems to be this notion that like if the government would just tell people that it's okay to go back to work or if aside and let people make their own decisions, they like the economy would run. And, you know, to like go back to the mayor in Ukraine that did what he did, I think the almost opposite would happen. Like if you just let people go out and, and start going back to, to work and going out to bars and restaurants again, and then you started to have the hospitals being overwhelmed and all of those other things happening, you know, that's, I don't think that's what you want. And I mean, I guess my point is, is like, I think the economic collapse was going to happen anyway, because you can't divorce the economy from people. Right. You know, and, and that's probably a whole other like podcast episode that we could have in, in talking about economic thinking. But, you know, yeah, like I, I just don't see like I just don't see people just going out and pretending as if nothing else is, is happening. So. So, yeah, I mean, with all of that, you know, with all of that being said, uh, I do want to encourage everybody to, you know, stay safe and, and stay healthy, regardless of where you are in the world uh, and regardless of what your government's telling you to do. Right. I mean, I, I, again, like I, I guess it is ultimately your bleach. choice. Yeah. I mean, don't drink bleach. Certainly do not drink bleach. <laughs> uh, but yes, like, you know, ultimately, like it is your choice. But, you know, like, please make a responsible choice and, and make a choice that, you know 
that you can be, you know, that you could be proud of. And I guess, you know, take that how, however as you want. But for me, that means that means staying at home for now. So um, anyway, we will hopefully make another episode soon. Uh, I, you know, this is another time where so much is so much is happening. You know, there's an election in the United States. Uh, there might very well be some sort of referendum in Russia soon. Uh, and so, yeah, we'll keep you all posted. All right, folks, thanks for listening.